Well, this morning we are going to continue walking through Matthew chapter 12 together. In fact, we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 12. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been looking at two different showdowns between Jesus and the Pharisees. Two weeks ago, we looked at how the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of violating the Sabbath. And as a result of that, they set out from that point until Jesus breathed his lap, they conspired to kill him. And then last week, we looked at how the Pharisees accused Jesus of healing by demonic powers. And so this morning, once again, we're going to see another showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 50 together. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 50. Our message point this morning is this. As believers, we should speak differently, believe differently, and live differently. Our first point this morning is this. Faith produces good words. All of us are familiar with James 2.26, where James wrote that faith produces good works. We all know that faith does produce good works. It says in verse 26 of James chapter 2, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without works is absolutely dead. The fruit of our faith does produce good works, but also notice that the faith, that, that the fruit of our faith also produces good words. You know, I think all of us in this room, if we have played competitive sports or if we have done anything competitive, whether it's in our own homes or outside the homes, we're familiar with a little bit of trash talk, right? I will tell you right now, as your pastor, I am pretty good at trash talking. Isn't that right, Justin? Amen, right there. Um, we are now playing softball as a, as a church. We've got about 24 of us that are on a softball team. And we are competing against other churches. And our first game is coming up this coming weekend. But I want you to know that I am the second oldest person on our softball team. Okay? I take great pride in that because um, I like to trash talk. If, if, regardless whether I do good or bad, I'm going to trash talk out on that softball field because that's just something that I do. I mean, it's just something that is fun to do. Trash talk can be innocent, but it also can be um, anything but innocent as well. As I was preparing for this message, I came across an illustration that Pastor David Dykes had shared. He heard the legendary Tom Landry share um, a story at an FCA rally about rookie running back Walt Garrison during his first NFL game. During his first NFL game, Walt Garrison was given the ball at the line of scrimmage. And he takes off running. And he is met by one of the fiercest, meanest linebackers of all time, Dick Butkus. 
He hits him at the line of scrimmage and Walt Garrison falls straight on his back. And Dick Buckets looks down at him and, and he says this. He says, little man, don't you run at me again. Well, the next time, next play, they give the ball once again to Walt Garrison, and he runs right into Dick Buckets at the line of scrimmage. Once again, he is flattened, laying on his back. Dick Buckets looked down at him, and he, and he said this, Little man, if you run that ball at me again, I'm going to bite off your head and swallow it whole. Well, Walt Garrison looked up at him and said, and if you do that, big man, you'll have more brains in your stomach than you do in your head. (laughs) That is trash talk at its finest right there. But as I indicated a second ago, there is another form of trash talk as well. And notice our first sub-point this morning is this. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So read with me in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. We're going to read verses 33 through 35 to begin with this morning. It says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brought a vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, The mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. How many of you have ever had a tree that has died? on you and you had to cut that tree down? Well, we have recently moved um, a little closer to the church. And we've got one glaring problem at our house. It's our two front trees. And they look like they are dying. Um, on both of the trees, half the tree is missing leaves and the other half of the tree is yellow. And so I've got an arborist buddy of mine that I asked to come over several weeks ago and I asked him to help me diagnose the problem. And so he shows up at our house and he looks at those trees and, and immediately he said, what you have is you have an iron deficiency problem. And I looked at him and I said, man, I thought iron was only humans can have a deficiency. I didn't know trees could have a deficiency. And that tells you how bad I am when it comes to um, anything horticultural. Okay, I've got a black thumb, not a green thumb. And so I asked Brian, my buddy, I said, so what is your recommendation? He said, well, my recommendation is this. I recommend that you cut down these two trees and plant new trees in their place. Now I said, okay, how much is that going to cost me? And he said, it's going to cost you upwards of $600. I go, okay, so what are my other options? He said, well, you can do an iron infusion. And I said, okay, how much does that cost? And he said, if you get a professional to do it, it's going to cost you about $150. And I go, sold right there. Um, I am much more willing to, and he goes, now the only problem with the iron deficiency is it's going to take about three years before these trees look healthy. And I said, I'm okay with that. I just want two trees in my front yard that are alive. That's all I care about. You know, here's the deal. In our day and time, you and I can pick up the phone if we've got a problem with our trees or our crops or our yard, and we can call up a professional to come out to our house and tell us exactly what is wrong with our our crops or our our trees or whatever. But 2,000 years ago, that was not possible. If a tree was not producing fruit, that tree was good for nothing except to be cut down and to be discarded. And, and so Jesus, on the heels 
of last week's message of telling the Pharisees that they were in danger of the fires of hell if they blasphemed the Holy Spirit tells them that they are a bunch of useless, unfruitful trees. And next, he not only calls them that, but next he calls them a broad of vipers. You know, vipers are some of the most venomous snakes on this planet. If you get bit by a a snake and you don't have a viper and they're at an anti-venom, close, then you are certainly going to meet your death. Well, during, during Jesus's day, there was not anti-venom. If you were bit by a snake, you were going to fall over dead pretty much immediately. We do read a story in Acts chapter 28 where that isn't the case. If you remember, um, Paul was shipwrecked on, on an island, and while he was on that island, he gets bit by a viper. And, and immediately, all of the people in that village expect Paul to fall over dead immediately. But Paul didn't fall over dead. He shook that snake off and that snake fell into the fire. And so immediately they call Paul a God right then and there. Paul was not a God. And he made that abundantly clear. He made it abundantly clear that he was protected by God. And as a result of that, God used Paul on that island to heal many people. And many people heard the good news of salvation as a result of that. Vipers are dangerous. Let me encourage you, Justin, especially over there. Don't go out and buy you a viper and use that as a witnessing tool. Okay, It will not work. You know, Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees are evil people. They're evil people that are seeking to destroy him and to destroy the very gospel that he is preaching. Again, in verses 12, 34b through 35, we read this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. As believers... Our speech should be drastically different from the speech of an unbeliever. Would you agree with me this morning in that? Our speech should be drastically different. You and I, when we are walking with the Lord and filling our souls with the good news found in the pages of God's Word, will speak good things because out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. However, if we fill our lives with the trash that this world throws our ways, guess what is going to come out? Trash talk is going to come out, right? Now, God created us unique from all of his other creation. We read in Genesis that God spoke all things into creation. We as humanity we're given the spoken word to communicate with God and to communicate with one another. We are different from all other of God's creation. Dogs bark, cats meow, lions roar, but you and I speak, converse with one another, and converse with God the Father. We speak words. Notice that our words can endanger us to eternal death. We see our next subpoint is this. Judgment is coming. In verses 36 and 37 we read, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every 
careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus does not say here, by your works you will be justified. He says, by your words, you will be justified. Meaning your words and my words will give evidence of the Holy Spirit's transformation that is taking place in our lives. Our words give evidence that you and I have been justified, that you and I have been found to be in right standing with God our Father. For those that speak trash talk, then Jesus makes it clear that their words will condemn them. Folks, the mouth will always speak what is in the heart. If you fill your mind and your heart with R-rated movies or R-rated movies or, or, or music or, or R-rated jokes that you entertain around the water cooler or if you fill your mind and heart with the R-rated websites that you look at. If we fill our lives with R-rated stuff, then guess what's going to come out? R-rated stuff will come out of our mouth and it will, it will, it will be reflected in, in, in our daily life. However, if our hearts are filled with God's word, then God's word is going to be what comes out. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So point number one is this. Faith in Jesus should produce good works. Point number two is this. Demanding a sign leaves no room for faith. So in verses 38 through 39 in Matthew chapter 12, we read this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, this next section of Scripture kind of blows me away whenever I read this. And here's why. The Pharisees have been with Jesus for months now. They have witnessed Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. They have seen the, the blind see, the dead raise, the deaf um, have heard, the mute have spoken, the demons have been exercised. They have witnessed him demonstrate his authority over nature. They have seen all of these different things. And now we see this crazy ask from the Pharisees. What do they ask? They want to see another sign from Jesus. Why is that? Is this, if, if Jesus performs just one more sign, is that going to be the difference between these men crossing that line between unbelief and faith? Could one more sign really be all the Pharisees need in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ? No, that's not what they're seeking here at all. What they're trying to do is they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to do everything that they can to accuse Jesus of performing these outrageous miracles, going against the Mosaic law. They want to trap him. They want to, they want to, even before he's crucified, they want to crucify Jesus is what they're looking at. They're looking for ammunition right now. They're not looking to see another sign so that they can believe in Jesus. They're looking for a sign so that they can condemn Jesus. So what does Jesus do? 
He goes, I'll give you a sign, and this will be the sign of Jonah. In verses 40 through 41, we read this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were evil and adulterous because they were unfaithful to God. They were supposed to be God's agents, set apart to shepherd the people. But they were not that. They were vipers out to destroy and try to prevent the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees want a sign. So what does Jesus do? He gives them a sign. He, he reminds them of Jonah and the great fish. For three days and three nights, Jonah was in the belly of that fish. But after those three days, God delivered him up. Jesus makes it clear that just like Jonah was delivered, so would he be delivered from the death that's awaiting him. Jesus is speaking of his resurrection here, of the day that he is going to rise from the dead. He is making it clear that the greatest sign of his lordship will not come from the healings that he has done, but the greatest sign of his lordship will be his resurrection. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an absolute must. You know that, right? We cannot believe that Jesus was just a great person, or a person cannot believe that Jesus was just a great physician, or a great teacher, or a great leader. You cannot believe that when Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, and breathed his last breath on the cross, that he was truly finished, that his life was over, and that that was it. That is not true. It was not finished. He still had one more thing to do, and that was to conquer death and rise from the dead. And he did that three nights after he was placed in that tomb. You see, Scripture is clear. In Romans 10, 9, passive Scripture that I, I quote often around here during our time of invitation, but Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that. Belief in the resurrection is a requirement for every believer. You cannot not believe in the resurrection and, and, and think that you're going to heaven. It is not possible. You have to believe in the resurrection because that is the foundation of our faith. Belief in the resurrection is a requirement for every person and every believer. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that he was more than just a great physician, more than just a great person, more than just a great teacher and a great leader. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he is the son of God and that he was and will always be. 
Just like Jonah preached to the city of Nineveh, their need to repent of their sins in order to experience salvation, so must you and I. We must be about the preaching of the good news of salvation to all mankind so that they will have an opportunity to repent of their sins and to turn from their wickedness and follow after Jesus Christ. Continue reading with me this morning. Notice the wisdom of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. The wisdom of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. We read in verse 42 these words. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here, is what Jesus said. The queen of Sheba was most likely from the lower part of Arabia. Uh, She was a pagan queen that, that we are told that she had great wealth, she had great power, and she had great beauty. She traveled some 1,200 miles, most likely, just to visit King Solomon. Solomon, as you know, is the wisest person that has ever lived. Solomon, though, his wisdom paled in comparison to that of Jesus Christ. In the expository's commentary, the commentator wrote these words. It says, Jesus points out that a pagan queen from of old would condemn these Pharisees. For when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, seeing his wealth and wisdom, she marveled that God had given such wisdom to man. Yet the Pharisees, they had the very wisdom of God standing in front of them, and they rejected every single word that Jesus spoke. Solomon was wise, but his wisdom pales in comparison to that of Jesus. And that brings us to our next sub-point. Jesus is greater than Solomon. In Matthew 12, 42b, Jesus said, something greater than Solomon is here. What Jesus is telling the Pharisees is this, that someone greater than Solomon is standing right in front of you right now, and you cannot even see me. They were blinded. Pharisees were blinded by their pride. They were blinded by their superstitions. They were blinded by their head knowledge. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you blinded this morning? Are you blinded by your head knowledge? Have you lived all of the days of your life relying upon the wisdom of man instead of seeking after the great I am, instead of seeking after the God of this universe who sent his son to this earth to die for your sins and for my sins? Jesus came and he dwelt among us. God left heaven, came to this earth, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, never sinned. He was the unblemished lamb. As a result of that, Jesus went to the cross and he died a criminal's death. His life blood was poured out. And we read in Romans 5.8 these words, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his great love for us while he was on that cross. He poured out his life blood so that you and I could enter into an eternal relationship with him if we place our faith in him. Three days later, he conquered death by rising from the grave. The Pharisees 
They demanded a sign from Jesus. And Jesus gave them the greatest sign. As he has given all of us the greatest sign as well. He rose from the grave. And because he conquered death, each and every one of us, if we place our faith and trust in him and repent of our sins, we too can conquer death. And we can enter into the promise of an eternal relationship with him. Notice our final point this morning. It is this. Faith and morality. Faith and morality. We know that Jesus healed many people. We know that he exercised many demons as well. We also know that not every person that Jesus healed became a follower. They did not all enter into an eternal relationship with him. And we know that because we read through the scripture that being true. One instance of that is found in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Jesus heals 10 lepers. And we read these words. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All of these men were healed physically of their leprosy. But only one person would turn back to Jesus to give praise. And as a result of that, he was, he was eternally made well through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice our subpoint here. Morality never saved anyone. Morality never saved anyone. In verses 43 through 45, we read, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. You know, this passage of scripture is kind of confusing. Um, on more than one occasion, preachers have, 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 have dissected this in a poor way. Jesus speaks here of a man who has been set free from demon possession. He had been given a new life. He had been given a fresh start. You know, I've known many, many people over the years as a pastor who have been delivered from sin who have been delivered from demons that have ravaged their souls. It may be the demon of alcohol, demon of drugs, pornography, some other sexual sin, or some eating disorder. They had been delivered and set free. They were free from that demon that once ravaged their souls. In this passage of Scripture, a demon has been exercised from a man. When that demon left that man's body, it could not find rest anywhere outside. 
Why is that? Why could that demon not find rest? It's because of this. Satan, what is Satan's primary goal? To steal, to kill, and destroy. Satan destroys and ravages man, obviously from the outside, but also from the inside. Satan is most comfortable whenever he dwells within man. Demons are most comfortable when they dwell within man, where they can steal, kill, and destroy from within. This demon that had been exercised, Realizing that this man had not repented of his sins and placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, following this exorcism, seeks to return and take up residency within the heart of that man. When he returned, though, he did not like what he saw. Why didn't he like what he saw? Because this man had cleaned up his act. Man, his heart had been swept and and the rooms had been cleaned and outwardly this man was living a more moral life. He had given away he had been delivered from those vices that once controlled him. This man, though, had not found faith. He had found morals and he had found values. He had cleaned up his act apart from faith. There was an outer reformation, but you know what there wasn't? There was not a heart change that happened in that man's life. So this demon, realizing that it is going to take more than just himself to ravage this man's soul, goes out and gets seven other demons more um, hideous than he was, and they all come and they take up residency within that man. When I have, what I have witnessed in my ministry on more than one occasion, is a person that has been set free from a particular vice. It may have been alcohol abuse, as I said, pornography or drugs or eating disorders or whatever. What I have seen is some return to the hell that they once lived in. And you know what happens when they return to that place? Oftentimes, they hit the bottle harder. They, they hit the drugs harder. They sink to a new low when it comes to pornography or sexual sins or eating disorders. Jesus is making it clear that if people do not repent and turn from their wicked ways, then not only will evil return, but it's going to return with a vengeance. I think we are seeing that right now within our world. Our world is not getting better. It is becoming more and more and more evil, isn't it? I mean, you turn the television on and you see the wickedness and the evil that is present, not only in in this country, but across this world. So knowing that, what do we need to do as believers in Jesus Christ? We need to do everything that we can to direct people to Jesus Christ, to lead them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Man, we can, we can be a part of things like Alcohol Anonymous. We can be a part of things like Celebrate Recovery. And we can help somebody with their outer vices. But you know what? What is key is the heart. 
heart transformation. And the only way the heart is going to be transformed is going to be by the power of Jesus Christ coming into that person's life and and saving them and setting them free. We need to be people that are pointing people to Jesus Christ. You know, I want to be, and I've shared this quote before, I want to be like C.T. Studd who said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That is who we need to be as a church. We need to be pointing people to Jesus Christ. And we're not going to be able to do it if we just do life as a church inside the walls of this building. We've got to do life outside of the doors of this church where we take the good news of salvation to those that we come to in contact with on a daily basis. Notice our final sub-point this morning. It is this. We are saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. In verses 46 through 50 we read, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. There is no greater blessing then that comes from a family, right? No greater blessing that we have than our immediate family. Jesus had an extended family. We know that he had both brothers and sisters. We also know that during Jesus' earthly ministry, they were most likely all unbelievers. Maybe not all of them, but many of them were. We read in John 7, 5, these words, For not even his brothers believed in him. And then in Mark three twenty through 21, we read, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus's family were unbelievers, yet they were still his family. They were still his, his family. But Jesus reveals something in this section of scripture that is very important to each and every one of us in this room. And once again, in verses 49 through 50, we read, And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He speaks of his disciples right here as being his brothers and sisters in Christ. He speaks of those who do the will of God the Father as being a part of his family. You know, I've said over and over from the pulpit, that I don't know what your relationship is like with your earthly family or your biological family, but I know that you have a God that loves you. That if you are a believer in him, you are his child. John 1.12, yet to all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. You are a part of his eternal family. You are a part of, of his family that, that stretches beyond race, stretches beyond um, language barriers, stretches beyond people groups. You and I are a part of every tribe, every language, 
every people, every race, every color of people are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a part of the family of God. You are a part of Christ's church if you are a believer. We are his bride, and one day he is going to return for every believer, and he is going to welcome us into his eternal home. Do you know Jesus this morning? If you were to die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? Scripture is clear that you're going to spend eternity in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus and repented of your sins and believe in, uh, upon his life, death, and resurrection, then you can be guaranteed that you will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. If you have never given your life to Jesus, never repented of your sins, and never committed to follow after him, then Scripture is also clear that you will spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. If you don't know Jesus this morning, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And this is a time where each and every one of us in this room can respond to Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to come. To all those who are bruised and broken this morning, you can come to Jesus for salvation. If you are here this morning and you don't have a church home and the Lord is leading you to be a part of this faith family, we invite you to come and be a part of this faith family. You know, I pray this morning that after a message like this, every single one of us recognize the importance of living godly lives, living lives that are set apart from this world, living differently, speaking differently. Our expectations are different. We don't need to see a sign because we have Christ that is living and dwelling within us. Let's be Christ's hands and feet and take the good news of salvation to this war-torn world that is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. Let's be his hands and feet this morning. Let's stand together. And as we stand, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And then after we pray, if there's a decision you need to make, you come. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning. Lord Jesus, Father, I come before you this morning just admitting, Father, that so often, Lord Jesus, I am not the best witness. I'm not the best witness in my home. I'm not the best witness at your church. I'm not the best witness in your community. Father, every single day I fall short of your expectations for my life. And Father, for that I know that you have forgiven me because I have sought your forgiveness. Father, I know that there are others in this room that, would, that would, would agree that their life oftentimes is like my life in that we fall short of your glory. But, Father, there's some in this room, Lord Jesus, that every single day they have fallen short of your glory. And they have, have, have never asked you to forgive them of their sins. And so, Father, I pray this morning. That if there is someone in this room that has never repented of their sins, never turned from their, their ways of life and placed their faith and trust in you, I pray this morning that they will make the greatest decision that they could ever make. And that is to repent of their sins and to believe in you for faith. Father, move now during this time of invitation. Lead people to respond to you. 
Father, I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, there's families here that you're leading to become a part of this faith family, that you will lead them this morning to do that very thing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. I know that sometimes, Lord, it's hard to hear. But, Father, we thank you for the transformation that occurs when we're obedient to your word. Father, move now during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.